Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Thank you. All right, welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist, and I'm here today with Jorge Conesa Sevilla, uh, whose work kept uh, being introduced to me through different works that I was reading uh, around many topics, around uh, topics that seem disparate, different uh, from each other, not connected. Uh, however, uh, he kept coming up, and it wasn't even his name that came up. I would hear something, and I'd be like, wow, that's really profound. And then I'd be like, okay, let me find out who said that. And then it would be this Jorge Conesa Sevilla person. And uh, then after that happened a few times, uh, I said, well, I should find out who this person is and how come I haven't heard of him before. And, uh, and I guess maybe I haven't heard of you, Jorge, uh, because you spend a lot of time in nature and there's not very good internet in nature. So you're not really out there advertising so much. You're actually you know, working one-on-one with people, working in nature, and teaching. So maybe if you wouldn't mind giving a little bit of who you are and uh, what your work is. Sure. Mostly, um, I am now a teacher, a uh, university teacher. So um, throughout the year, I teach any number of courses, different levels of university um, learning. Um, as you said, uh, throughout the years, uh, some of those courses have involved um, doing something with students in nature. Um, if I'm not doing something with students, I'm always the first one to go on by myself, no matter what. So um, it, it is true um, by nature, I guess uh, I'm an introvert. So I try to stay away from the public eye as much as possible. Uh, and I do that on purpose. So um, the least that I, that I can do that, the, the happier I am. This is a this is actually a, a rarity um, doing this uh, with you. You're a very engaging person, and um, you coaxed me out of my um, my hideout, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> but right now, I'm very busy uh, putting together the the first issue of the Ecopsychology Journal through Humboldt State University. So there are five of us that are working at the same time across. In the United States, uh, getting all the articles uh, edited and read uh, in order, and that's coming out within the next uh, three weeks. And of course, teaching three university courses uh, keeps me busy 24-7. So that, that, that is as much as I want to say now <laughs> about myself. Um, unless you have any questions, Zach. Yeah, I think my questions will bring up more of who you are. That'll begin to unfold. But I think that was a, a good introduction. And I'm glad that you've decided to come out of the wilderness for a minute to uh, share some of that wilderness and hopefully coax some others out of the city life and into, and into the wild. That's, that's the goal here. So as paradoxical as it may seem to have all of these electronic devices hooked up and people listening on a podcast, sometimes that's how the message comes across. That's where the shaman's drum may be heard in some ways. So uh, I guess uh, maybe what I'll start with is I didn't fully understand what eco-psychology was. Um, I lived in Utah for the past uh, five years, and then now I live in the Big Island of Hawaii. But before that, I lived in the Bay Area of California, and I grew up in kind of what would be considered 
the ghettos or the projects. I lived in a house, but my house was bordered to projects that, you know, we had razor wire, barbed wire. We ended up putting it up an electric fence. We had like cinder blocks in the back, you know, uh, you know, it was an interesting place to grow up and, uh, power lines overhead and, you know, a lot of dis- you know, uh, wealth wealth disparity in the Bay Area is, is, uh, is rampant. You know, you see homeless people on the streets and then you see a Lamborghini drive by and uh, just kind of, it feels a lot like uh, New Delhi. I spent some time in New Delhi. It feels similar to that in the Bay Area these days, uh, at least in San Francisco. And Oakland is almost like uh, unrecognizable. Um, so uh, I say all that to say that in Utah, there's a lot of people that are familiar with, you know, wilderness therapy, you know, we're generally like, you know, kids that are considered to be misbehaving end up getting kidnapped in the middle of the night with their parents' consent and then drug out into nature. And uh, some of them end up taking to nature and some of them hate nature forever uh, after that experience. And uh, I guess what is eco-psychology? Is it the same as wilderness therapy? Uh, what, what is it? So, you know, the terming, the, the term itself is actually open to, um, to projection. Uh, so there are many senses which we can use that term. I use it myself in different contexts and senses. So the first time I was introduced to ecopsychology was when, when I was taking human ecology courses at Humboldt State University uh, back in the late 70s and 80s. Um, and that came via the writings of um, Paul Shepard. So my my uh, my instructor then was uh, Bill Deval, uh, who some of you may know as uh, one of the um, not the founders, but one 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 important voice among many um, of deep ecology. So, so it was that context um, and the first context where I heard ecopsychology. Part of my readings as a student uh, were related to um, ecopsychological themes. Having said that, then I had a, a definite idea of what ecopsychology was in that context, that university context. And obviously, in the kinds of things that I was doing back then, um, including working for the California. Um, Department of Fish and Game back then, the work uh, with them in the wilderness, um, uh, doing zazen meditation, um, living up in Trinidad, California. So th- that whole setting is, is a huge context for what I define in, in my mind as eco-psychology. But it had, some, it had to have some components, right? Um, I think in your book, because um, your book goes into great detail uh, of what eco-psychology is. And then uh, I forget what the exact term is. It just escape, escapes me right now. If you asked me a week and a half ago, I would just shoot it off. But the idea of like tracking, and there's a word that represents tracking. Uh, I forget what this sure, word I is. Think, I think tracking would be one. Semiosis. Yeah, yeah, is that what yeah, the word I'm looking for? Ecosemiotics or biosemiotics. I would definitely um, put uh, tracking uh, under that umbrella of ecosemiotics or biosemiotics. And more specifically, it, it could be one of these um, many activities that we employ in order to, to enter nature, enter it with, with, uh, with our eyes open, looking for things that are meaningful and trying to understand it at the level of the other, uh, how an otherness, uh, other animals um, move through that space, um, what do they say um, th- through their tracks, 
when they move through that space? And is there something that I can enter that animal otherness by actually understanding a lot about tracking uh, their signs, their signage? Um, so, so there's a bit of that uh, for sure in a lot of what I consider eco-psychology is do, doing something actually um, meaningful, practical, um, pragmatic in nature, something that is giving you something um, right away, is feeding you something um, more, I guess, more than feeding your your sentiments, your emotions. Um, in in my in, in my aspect, my I guess in my perspective, it also has to hit the intellect. I have to be learning something uh, from nature every time I, I enter those spaces. Um, so, so that that was the maybe some say will say uh, the very narrow uh, entry uh, from from me into ecopsychology. In, in other writings, I talk about ecopsychology as being if you don't connect it to the movements in the '60s and the '70s, all these writings that now we define as the classical literature literature of ecopsychology. Beyond that is any time that humans have considered that their psychologies were dependent on um, this connection, this intimate connection with nature, we, we had a sensitivity uh, of something I call eco-psychology, right? Uh, the aesthetics of nature, um, how that aesthetics uh, impacts me and how does it make me feel on any given day and whether or not that is a better feeling or psychological makeup than when, as you were describing, when I'm living in a city, and I'm pushed by other people to follow any number of vectors that do not appeal to me. So there's the the global uh, pre. And eventually, you I think you end up learning kind of like a domesticated animal to be more comfortable in your confines and almost uncomfortable in nature at all. I mean, I have a friend of mine who's a successful attorney in the Bay Area who kind of grew up near where I did, and uh, you know he says. Gosh, if I could just never go out in nature at all, I would be happier, is what he believes. Like He would be happier if he would go uh, from his house into his car and not even see the outside and then go into his office. And uh, I, I actually experience the opposite. Like if I'm on an airplane, uh, I start to feel a lot of like anxiety and panic just with like how like fake everything is like plastic and the carts going down and like hearing the like the crinkled plastic and then like you know hearing like seeing all the different like tv things on on the back of people's seats and people's headphones in and then all of the different emotions that people are experiencing from the different things they're watching the anxiety people are experiencing from flying the the shaking of the plane the altitude the fake air coming i just start to freak out uh and i i've had a lot of panic attacks in those situations so uh, maybe I'm, I don't know. I've, I've always been drawn to the outside. I actually had a dream, which I guess maybe we'll go next into. I had a dream, uh, not last night, but the night before that ended up turning into a lucid dream, uh, where I was walking through a Japanese tea garden. Maybe this is in preparation of talking to you about the Zazen meditation, but, uh, I was walking through a Japanese tea garden and I had remembered something that I had forgotten uh, which is I, I went on a school field trip once to this Japanese tea garden. And in where I lived at the time, it's like one of the, which was Hayward, California. There wasn't 
any really beautiful places there. There was very few. There was a place called like East Avenue Park in the hills, but that was kind of too far. And then there was this place, this Japanese tea garden next to this Safeway on Foothill Boulevard. And it's like in this in, like industrial crappy area, you know, but like it's somehow this like little oasis of beauty. And in the dream, I'm, I'm in this Japanese uh, tea garden saying like some type of prayer to the, uh, uh, the phone wouldn't work. And I'm saying a prayer to this creek. I don't know why to find somebody that me and Madeline were trying to reach. And then a raven comes out and is flying around bumping into me and I go gosh I'm clearly dreaming and then of course I became lucid and you know a whole bunch of things happened uh, after that uh, where am I going with all this is uh, I felt this craving for aesthetic beauty uh, and I would break into this place in the middle of the night. Uh, sorry to all the places I broke into. I would get kicked out of my house all of the time as a kid. And so I'd like break into the Japanese tea garden and hang out there and often drink beer, malt liquor. And then, I, I, you know, East Avenue Park was too far, but eventually I'd start hiking up to the top of East Avenue Park. I think one day we uh, found keys in a car, a group of us, and like took the car for like like all to these cool places. We weren't even old enough to drive at the time. And then we returned the car to where we got it from. So we weren't very good car thieves as young teenagers. But, um, you know, this deep craving, this deep yearning for uh, a connection with nature where it's not present. We learn in schools where there's you're not in nature. You, you know, and I'm here in Hawaii, you lived in Hawaii, and uh, some of the struggle, or so I hear, is that it's very difficult to get Native Hawaiians uh, that are young to want to be sitting in classrooms and learning about whatever it is that we're told is important. They want to spend time surfing or outside, and the Christian missionaries, from what I'm told, I don't know if this is accurate, like would plant these trees that had like giant one or two inch thorns that would go through your feet on the beaches because they couldn't get them to go to service because they just wanted to surf and be on the beach and make love or do whatever it was. Not that the Hawaiians were perfect or anything, but, you know, they definitely were drawn more towards nature. And this is common in indigenous cultures as well as uh, common in shamanic cultures. So uh, I don't know if you want to touch a little bit on modern man. I think you depicted him as uh, Dross or Dr I can't remember the name you, you Mr. Uh, Dross, Dross, I think. Was a, yeah, uh, fictional character, a collection of images and individuals and characteristics uh, yeah well the, the very descriptions they're using um to to well to illustrate that disconnection um at first is very i was i would say well intended our parents want the best for us they think cities are the the most important place for children to to erase them because they have and they oh, have to work, right? Like my, my mom hardly yeah. had any money. Access so she to had hospitals, to work, didn't libraries, have a choice. schools. So I think for the most part, parents are thinking uh, on behalf of their children. Um, the good thing, as you cited, many cities have uh, very good parks. So to the extent that there is a park and there is some sort of uh, instruction about um, moving into these spaces and, and enjoying that space. Uh, in a very positive way, then, you know, those are the building blocks for something else. Um, our desire to, to pursue other natural spaces, right? So every natural space, even a park, a city park, has the potential to instruct us uh, in something. So uh, they do bird watching in, in the middle of New York City, right? In Central Park. So th there's always a, a possibility to learn something about nature. You, you can't really... Um, uh, escape nature for too long or 
you have to be very extreme uh, to actually isolate yourself from natural processes like the weather and um, obviously the the night and day cycles. Uh, so, so nature is always there. We just don't acknowledge it. But a natural sp space that is a little bit wild, uh, you know, is is um, is something that should be considered a privilege in somebody's um, childhood. Um, your, your your description of um, the circumstances under which we are barraged with information that is definitely useless. Uh, the city environment is set up so we are always consumers 24 seven and everything that we see is potentially something we could buy. So that, that is never, um, we can never get away from those situations. And um, because you brought up tracking, oftentimes I compare those situations of social cacophony there's a lot of confusion, noise, uh, things that are not important to places where, um, where I'm walking on the way to some place else that is more natural. And I see uh, human tracks everywhere. So there's a parking lot on the sand this morning. And there are hundreds if not thousands of human tracks going on top of each other. There are dogs, um, you know, there are sand vehicles. And then you have to go beyond that uh, quite a distance, a mile or so, to actually find the single track of one solitary walker with their dogs. And finally, all you find is uh, seagull tracks or um, fox tracks or egg tracks. So you have to do some sort of kind of bypassing of the social, uh, of the noise to actually find that, that a quiet group. A quiet group. <laughs> something that comes to mind is uh and i feel just kind of calmer than usual for those of that listen to my podcast like they're gonna be like wow zach didn't have any coffee today or something uh because i'm like just naturally more calm talking to you uh for some reason you i you know we have you know i guess modern science would say we have mirror neurons uh you know maybe other cultures would say that we're partaking of a spirit that is my spirit and your spirit and harmonizing in some way. Um, but I, uh, something that stood out to me and I'm probably misquoting is, uh, something I think you were even quoting the person that said there's, there's no healthy psyche in San Francisco. If I, if I remember that correctly, uh, like in a, in a big city that essentially our psyche is only healthy in its relationship to the natural world, not its relationship to uh, the man-made world, and not not that all man-made things are are negative, but I don't, I don't. Are you familiar with Ian McGilchrist? He keeps coming up in my podcast lately. Uh, the the idea of like his work of the right and left hemisphere, and he's a neurologist and medical doctor, and he went. I think he was a professor of uh, literature or something before that. But uh, the idea is, is that, and David Bohm talked about this as well, as he said, uh, it's very difficult to go to a place where thought, human thought, and I think had he been around, still alive, he died in 93, if he had still been alive uh, during the time of Ian McGilchrist, uh, he would say that the left hemisphere's uh, engagement with the world, because I think 
that humans, when they operate from their right hemisphere, from an artistic perspective, that their art or their work or even their buildings are connected to the right hemisphere, which is connected to the whole of nature and other beings, then maybe it does activate that right hemisphere aspect of how we could be in the world. Whereas other people, like my friend, for example, and many other people that live in, that work in corporate environments and things like that, they're living in a world that's completely left hemisphere uh, driven, which is, you know, abstract, parceled out, separate from the whole, uh, which is an aspect of our lives and part of being human to use both of these. Uh, however, the idea that Ian presented is that there's the master, which is the right hemisphere, the aspect of ourself or our soul that's connected to the whole world and to eternity and to the numinous. And then there's a the left hemisphere, which is fragmentary, uh, broken up, isolated, disconnected from the whole, and oftentimes, you know, selfish and short, short aimed. And uh, I, I see a lot of that when I look in cities. Uh, and maybe you want to talk about the psyche and how it could be healthy in nature. And, the, and then I guess this is a continuum, the greater degree of nature and the less of this left hemisphere uh, ridden world. Uh, the greater degree of the health of the human psyche. And the human psyche, of course, the greater the health of the human psyche, the, the more ex physical health expression we also have. I don't know if you want to touch on any of, of that. It's not really yeah, a question. No. Oh, the only thing that I could contribute is, um, you know, as a student, um, I was fortunate enough to, to be involved uh, with my mentors in hemispheric um, research, meaning specifically how each hemisphere is processing different sorts of information, audio, visual, uh, and also about the way they share information. So the, the, the little that I know comes from that literature. It's literature that I have to refer to back, back to um, often because I have to, I have to talk to my colleagues about this stuff all the time. But the only thing that I would qualify is that um, when, when we're really processing information in a, in a rich way, we do need two hemispheres working together, sharing information. Each one is specializing in aspects of, of the environment um, that the other one is not. So, and, and there, there might be some um, maybe exaggerations or caricatures when it comes to the right hemisphere, because um, for most of us, uh, humans process negative emotions in the right hemisphere. So if you're moving through a cityscape and you're looking at people being disturbed, frown, frowning, uh, with a skull on their faces. Um, you know, you're processing that, that, that ill humor um, with your right hemisphere. So it is not the case that, um, you know, the right hemisphere will be um, inactive during, that, the, during the walking of that space. It is absolutely true that the left hemisphere is specializes in, in sequences, in bits and pieces. So he likes to grab the, the, the little tiles of a mosaic and examine them. And this information is sent to the right hemisphere and they have, the right hemisphere kind of keeps, keeps a, a gestalt of all this information, but the gestalt could be really, really bad. So what, what the right hemisphere is actually presenting to us, even within a city, experiences, it could be not, not very, very uh, positive or uh, conducive to happiness. See what I'm saying? Um, so, so there's, there's yeah, I, I, I heard a, 
I heard once said by uh, at his Grief and Mystery tour that we were inside and it was Stephen Jenkinson that was holding this. Uh, he works with like death and dying and bereavement and writes these books with, that are, are, are pretty deep and he writes in an unusual way. And he said that uh, we were in Salt Lake at the time. This is pre-COVID when people were gathered and it was a sold out you know, thing at the library and live music and all of that. And at the end, he says something about outside of these doors when I went to walk in were people with tents outside of Salt Lake even is happening now and people on, you know, people on drugs and people drinking. And most of this, uh, most of these people, this were in Salt Lake City, uh, where uh, the it's one of the main meccas of the op- op- opioid e- epidemic. Uh, where people are taking, you know, Oxycontin and heroin and, you know, eventually Oxycodone usually turns into heroin if you're not resourceful enough to keep your Oxycontin stash or Oxycodone stash. Uh, But he says, what is an opioid? Like, what is is it that they're taking out there? Well, they're taking an anesthetic. And if you break up uh, the word anesthetic, it's like anti-beauty. Essentially, there is a lack of beauty and they are numbing themselves from the pain of the of their inability to for their soul to live in the environment that they're in. And that's why they continue to take the opiate. And then it's a it's a full loop. The minute you can't stop taking the opiates because it's too like once you stop, it's totally unmanageable uh, to be able to. Uh, to handle what you already couldn't handle that caused you to take the opiates to begin with. And some way to look at people that are addicts is you could look at them as maybe the most sensitive people that they just like cannot bear the, the, the ugliness of, of the world that we live in. And, uh, yeah. And maybe some autism, maybe like that might be some of why autism is growing. I mean, it's not so simple and like cause and effect, you know, but you know, some of that could be that very unnatural environments with iPads and iPhones and, you know, completely artificial worlds. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know enough about all of that. Yeah, you know, the, um, I'm always very interested in um, the neurobiology of, say, the nature experience. And um, there's enough evidence out there now that suggests that, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, uh, an hour being outdoors in a, in a natural setting that is truly park-like. Uh, away from cars and streets, and most most people um, brings your your attention to another another level, and the, and the attention I think is uh, fully fledged attention. You are actually working with both hemispheres, and one one sure sign of that, at least for me, is um, the measurement of whether or not I have spent enough time in nature. But I stop thinking about myself as a, as a person or as a name or as a self, um, I'm just it. And, and that's, a, that's a, not, not only a beautiful thing, but it's, a, I think, a necessary thing. Uh, almost everything about our society is constructed around the idea of identity, uh, defending it, projecting it, um, trying to change it. So this, this three, three hours this morning walking on the beach, <laughs> You know, at some point there's there's nothing there. I just uh, arrived to my car and I do drive a pickup. Uh, you know, 
Oh, okay. I have a pickup, and that belongs to me. I'm not necessarily say I'm on Jorge, but get back to um, to the parking lot. For the previous three hours, I was focused on finding agates, um, looking at dead seals or seagulls, um, watching out for the big waves. Uh, nothing else mattered except that. I think that's probably if we're going to define, you know, what, what sort of psychology should come out of these experiences. And that, that might be a very good measurement of how deep we went, is how, how much we forget that we are actually this um, fictional self constructed by society. I guess maybe this is a good time to go into uh, the psychological aspect because you have, a, I believe, a doctorate in psychology, Jorge, if I'm not mistaken. I, I do, experimental psych. Um, I have, I was, I was just messaging, uh, my partner, Madeline to bring me, I noticed that my computer, I normally have it fully charged and I didn't have it fully charged on this. So I'm like, I got to plug it in, in the middle of it. It gets really, I, I, all of the, uh, electricity on our, on our land comes from uh, a waterfall. So essentially we're generating, uh, hydroelectric power. Thank you. It's not a video. Oh, I guess. Yeah. Thank you so much. So we're generating uh, power from hydroelectric. And uh, what it does sometimes is it gets my, when my computer is on and it's using, and it's using a bunch of uh, like programs and it gets really hot when it's also charging. But I, the last thing I want is for us to be in the middle of the podcast and then my computer dies. So you're talking and I'm like, gosh, I'm trying to get There'll my phone to work. There'll be opportunities so the, You can always do it again. The, so. um, yeah, no, you were, I'm sorry. But I think the, so I, I just, I just got it plugged in. So now, now we're, now we're good. Uh, I want to touch into uh, uh, the idea of identity, uh, the idea of the ego, because I know that a lot of people um, kind of what's happening now is this idea of the ego getting demonized and then kind of the war with the self. Somehow I'm going to ascend beyond myself, which is kind of another, I mean, in my experience, a new egoic trap. Uh, and then, uh, you know, some people that meditate all day or meditate a lot, but then still don't spend any time in nature. Um, and then I, I guess I wanted to bring up, uh, I've never heard this quite said the way that you said, you said it. And again, I'm paraphrasing, but, uh, referring to, uh, Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud as uh, kind of modern day Western shamans or shamanic in nature, um, I wanted to know if you could touch yeah, on that a little bit. Yeah, imperfect, right? Very imperfect shamans. Sh shaman in, in terms of their sensitivity to, to understanding what um, symbols mean and what um, other cultures may offer uh, with respect to our understanding of psychology. Uh, each one of them handles it differently. Um, so, so when it comes to Freud in particular, we have a very interesting person because he's a, an avid mushroom hunter. So he likes to take his kids um, to the mountains in Germany to hunt for, for mushrooms. Uh, some say that his uh, partitioning uh, personality into an ego, superego, and the id, or a conscious, unconscious, and preconscious um, has 
has a lot to do with mycology, with the fact that you have a fruiting mushroom and then you have the mycelia underneath the, the ground. Uh, so there are a couple of references that are actually, um, they're, they're hidden in the literature. You have to really look for them. Um, where, in fact, maybe this is where Freud comes up with his analogies. It wasn't an iceberg, but he was thinking mushrooms. Mushrooms uh, were in his mind. So, so there's this kind of organic um, connection, a curiosity. Um, he loved doing that with his kids and identifying all sorts of mushrooms so they can eat them. Um, their kids remember that very fondly from Freud. Um, from Jung, uh, his experiences are kind of uh, negative in a way. He, he goes walking into the woods, he finds uh, the, the, the very reality of death and that transforms him according to him. So there's, there's less about Jung. Um, and then there's this, this whole bit of intellectualizing what they think about nature, which may be very uh, super ever aberrant, right? You can't do too much with that. If you're an armchair naturalist, you're not a naturalist. So in that sense, um, their ecologies or the eco-psychologies fail to some extent because they're not, they're not projecting everything. Um, they're not going the next, the next step forward. Th their psychologies and I guess their perspectives are uh, the viewing of a mind that's already in need of, of therapy, right? The, the Viennese or the, the Swiss uh, individual who's been hyper, um, uh, I guess, brainwashed into believing that uh, civilization is about living in cities. Victorian age or coming out of the Victorian age, when women are strapped into these contractions, uh, they can't breathe. So there's a lot of uh, restricting or restriction of agency, human agency. So, so they are coming to this conversation from a, from a perspective of pathology already, right? So it's, it's difficult to get outside that pathology. They have to address that first and, and foremost. Uh, so you can only get a little bit of, 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 of them, of their thinking uh, geared toward um, this notion of eco-psychology. Paleo-psychology is, is the closest that they ever get to this notion that we are natural beings um, first and foremost. I'm going to, um, if you allow me, uh, Zach, um, only because <laughs> lately I have been um, noticing this more and more and more, um, is the idea of degrees, you know, um, I never thought I, I was gonna become a, an experimental psychologist or pursue a PhD. I was uh, happy to live in California being a beach bum for a long time, being an artist with my hair long, uh, skinny. Um, you know, I met my wife and uh, she was a philosopher. So I thought I had to, I had to keep up with her. Um, but then, you know, I, I went to school um, because I was interested in natural resources. Uh, I was connected to the California, then the California Department of Fish and Game. So it, it behooved me to actually have a degree in natural resources. But once I start taking classes at Humboldt State University, I get interested in other things, uh, biology, psychobiology. And then also there's a, a stipend, a grant to go to graduate school in Ohio. And then you go, okay, well, maybe that'll be a good thing. So one never actually plans 
these things that you end up with this degree or that degree because you were curious about this thing or that thing. Um, and I didn't go into my uh, this trajectory um, because I, I wanted a degree in something. Does that make sense? I just want to clarify that because uh, yeah, a lot of people um, have have some sort of a they feel funny about this notion of degrees or academics uh, present themselves professionally as doctors or something and um, that's not kind of my, my cup of tea. Um, I just found my way in graduate school and then one day I woke up and I had a, a PhD but I wasn't thinking you know I, I have to have this to be to be someone. It wasn't, it wasn't on your vision board. You didn't put it on no, a vision board no on your one wall or anything like that. that then you had to go do that. <laughs> in Northern uh, California, ever um, could have guessed, let me put it that way, that I was going to finish uh, three degrees. You know, I, 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 feel the, uh, I feel similar. I don't have any degrees at all to speak of. I have a 10th grade education. So, uh, uh, I'm not saying that to boast, but I just, I couldn't make it through the, the madness that was my living situation when I was, you know, 15 and 16. So, uh, I was doing remarkably well in school up until then, you know, almost a 4.0, which is exceptional if you realized how much classes I cut and how drunk I was or high I was at, at class every day, uh, which I didn't know at the time was basically a medicine for me. I don't actually... I mean, it's rare that I drink anything these days, uh, but I found that I couldn't function otherwise. I remember the first time I discovered alcohol, I was like, I thought, you know, oh my gosh, like this is a miracle. Like I could think, I, I'm like, it's almost like my soul entered my body the minute I drink, as opposed to otherwise I was just kind of frazzled and anxious. You see pictures of me and I'm like stiff as a board. And, uh, you know, I think that's a protection mechanism. You know, you have fight, flight, or freeze, and I think I was just con constantly in a in a state of of freeze, a freeze response. And then if I drink alcohol, I could like think and talk and be free, and I didn't, you know, question what I was saying as I was saying it. Um, so I say all that. Um, thank you for sharing on Freud and Jung and a little bit of how you ended up with three degrees and having a doctorate and uh, the strange nature of it. I also feel that I'm in a strange place. Uh, I, you know, with a 10th grade education, I don't feel that, you know, I would have been able to perceive that I would be interviewing, you know, doctors and working with doctors and lawyers and having a finance company and uh, that it does things completely different um, and that I would eventually be, uh, it's funny to use the term owner, I guess, steward of 86 acres in Hawaii on an off-grid uh, healing center with a uh, ho ancient Hawaiian temple connected to my house uh, with a permaculture food forest that's been planted in addition to all of these other things. And this morning, before getting on the call, we were helping a uh, baby calf that was born uh, that was not doing so well, kind of nursing it back to health right before this podcast. And afterwards, I, you know, get on financial calls. So, you know, I, I don't quite know where all this is going. Um, this is definitely not what I had anticipated. And a lot of it's a result of, you know, trying to earn a livelihood. You know, people are like, well, why do you do finance things? And I'm like, well, I just, you know, I, f I wanted to help. I wanted to help other people figure out how to not go broke and manage their money because I myself had no idea how to do that. Even if I made money, I had no idea what to do with it once I got it. Uh, 
And then, I mean, what, would it be what I chose to do? Like given the, given any choice that I had? No, definitely wouldn't have been what I chose to do. But then what do you do once you acquire these skills? Do you put them to use? Do you not put them to use? I mean, this is the, this is the conundrum I've been working with right now is, you know, I much prefer, you know, gardening and, you know, spending time in nature and dream work than I do working with numbers and abstractions. But it's, I, I do like helping people work with those numbers and abstractions. But like I, at the same time, feel like I really would love to help them live a different life and kind of I would love to somehow welcome in a, you know, an ancient, a new and ancient story, I guess I would say, uh, stealing from Charles Eisenstein on that. But like a time where people are a reunion takes place where people are connected with one another and community and like working in harmony with nature and are happy and don't need a bunch of therapy because they're spending time in nature. They're not trying to figure their dreams aren't nightmares because, you know, they're not you know, in, you know, tortured souls. Um, and we don't need all these abstractions, like, you know, as like we have a different form of money. I don't know what that exactly looks like. And that's, that would take a whole couple podcasts to go into some ideas around what that could look like. But, uh, yeah, I guess maybe the next question for you would be, what do people do, you know, like that, that are living in these cities and that, yeah, that sounds great. You know, uh, I'm here on 86 acres and I, and you, people think they picture me out here relaxing, drinking a mar margarita or something on the beach or, you know, and I actually don't spend as much time outdoors as you would imagine. And when I do, I'm generally working pretty hard and that's not common in a lot of indigenous cultures to where they would work nonstop. Like I spend significantly less leisure time than I, again, I wasn't there, but then I would imagine a native Hawaiian spending 300 years ago, uh, I have much less leisure, leisure time. And I think most everybody does. We have all these time saving devices and, you know, you could, there's an app for everything, uh, except more time. Uh, we have less time now than we ever had less leisure, less time in nature. And I think maybe what we're dealing with, with the coronavirus and, uh, the political madness, frankly, and, uh, all over the world, especially here in the United States, is maybe some type of, I guess maybe I'll ask you, what do you think's happening? I think maybe what I think is maybe we're being called back to nature somehow because uh, we can't even meet indoors. You know, we're having, an, we'd, we'd run an ecstatic dance in Salt Lake City and nobody wants to dance indoors. They're like, we'd rather dance outside in the freezing cold and not get COVID than dance inside and risk getting COVID. And like part of me is like, well, that's crazy. But then the part of me goes, well, you know, maybe everybody's being called to not be indoors because otherwise you could get this, yeah. this virus that's out there. What do you yeah, think, Jorge? No thoughts about that because everything is, uh, it's multifactorial in my mind. All these things are elements of a perfect storm, right? That happens to, to be present, to present itself uh, now, today, you know, the political unrest, uh, the ideological divide that, that we're experiencing um, a virus that forces us to to do things uh, very differently than, than we're accustomed to. Um, I don't know that those are are those are things or forces that are contrived or determined by any force in general, but but they're useful learning experiences to the extent that the coronavirus pandemic teaches us that you know nature is alive and well, even though it's invisible and it can it can upset uh, all our plans uh, being civilized in this way or that way 
and um, all our perfect lives um, go to pieces only because uh, a virus is something that really is not considered a living thing. Um, you know, wants to reproduce or wants to replicates and replicates and replicates. And that's a simple process, which is super fundamental in nature. Um, you know, basically, if not destroys, brings civilization across the world um, to its knees. I don't know that it is a calling uh, to be out, outdoors, but it, it is a necessity all of a sudden that people have to be out there. And um, the only way to keep maybe some distance, safe distance, is to find places that are even more open-ended. Um, and that has helped. I don't know that that's going to change us. Um, I think that we're so stuck in our ways. Uh, most people associate uh, safety and, and living a good life with buildings and with organizations and uh, cities. So my sense is that most people go back to what they were experiencing before. Uh, only because that's that, that's a habit that is difficult to um, to to eliminate. Uh, one hopes, you know, when I'm thinking super optimistically here, that a lot of things will change. But um, I don't know how many things will change. Um, you know, I, I I saw a movie a while ago, Jorge. And this might sound off topic, but I don't think it is. Let's see where it goes. It's coming up pretty strong for me. It came up earlier in this in this talk too, and it's a movie called Dark City. It came I, out in like ninety. I've seen it several times. Have you seen it? Great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised actually. Several <laughs> times. Cool. Uh, the. I feel like, uh, and this is a total spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie, but it's okay. It's still a fantastic movie, even with the spoiler alert. But uh, everybody is working and doing all of these things. And in this, it's always nighttime and it's miserable and these aliens are running everything. And everybody has the postcard of Shell Beach on their on their on their desk, and they're they're all gonna go to Shell Beach someday. Someday they're gonna go to Shell Beach. And the guy, the main guy, John Maddox, like, have you ever been to Shell Beach? And uh, and I remember when I like when like, there was an awakening, I guess, that took place for me uh, that started with a panic attack. And if you look at what the what a panic attack is, is uh, if you look at the words, panic comes from pan. Uh, a lot of people don't ever make this connection or don't, we don't think to look at the etymology of words. I didn't, at least until pretty recently. And then I go, well, wait a second. Like, what are words even? Like, words point to things in nature. I mean, originally, words were connected. You could find their connection to the natural world. And then we have an alphabet. And even the alphabet, for time being, was connected to the natural world. And then eventually, now we're dealing with abstractions on abstractions, and we're trying to find our way back. And we say things that are, are literally what they are, even when they're not actually literally what they are. Like, you know, we're in a time of, you know, quote unquote, post truth or whatever. But I'm getting off topic panic attack. I'm here having a panic attack. This is the beginning of the awakening. And, uh, and, Pan represents uh, the male god of nature, like the idea that uh, nature is only feminine or there's only Mother Earth or the feminine nature spirits uh, is actually maybe part of the reason, at least James Hillman believed this, it was part of the reason that men are so capable of destroying the planet is that they don't see themselves present within it. And then you have, you know, the god Pan, uh, which at one point, I guess, uh, it was the first god to ever die where they... You know, people were shouting in the streets, Pan is dead, Pan is dead. Uh, and, you know, uh, the idea was is that Pan and the connection to nature 
uh, somehow died. And then our modern time depicted uh, the devil essentially as Pan. I mean, if you look at the devil and you look at Pan, you go, well, they're the same person. But Pan, on, on the other hand, was a nature spirit, the male nature spirit. Um, I don't know if you want to speak, if you know much about Pan and uh, Pan's relationship with uh, with nature and our relationship with the idea well, of Pan. Just in general, that, you know, pre-Christianity, I guess there was a, um, there was a substantial, um, I would say, canon of gods and goddesses and um, there was no institutional church like, like a catholic church or uh, forcing people to believe in this god versus that one so i, I just comment i would like to comment on the obvious that you go from a situation of fluidity with nature naming any number of gods right with some representing nature more than others to having um, just just one absolute sense of what what that could be, of what the transaction could be about, and that, that's just the, the, what you're now. I think um, um, talking about it, it's it's probably the best propaganda campaign ever, right? To to take the gods that belong to the locals and then demonize them, so then you can use them against them. It's kind of this false consciousness type of um, project that takes away the very things that you thought were, were good, uh, were interesting, were meaningful to you, and turn them around into something that is uh, quite the opposite. Um, I don't know if we lost transmission there. I mean, it's, it's no, I mean, I, I, I really want to touch on how nefarious this really is, that everything becomes not one, as in one is connected, it becomes there is this one thing, either you're with us or against us, and then everything that is not us is anti-us. And uh, it's it tears apart uh, all diversity. And I, I was raised in this, and, you know, I, I, I say this where there's this small percentage of me that worries that there's this judging father God in the sky and that even me talking about this is going to land me in eternal damnation burning forever. Uh, like how a compassionate God would do such a thing is another story. But I mean, it was, I'm an intel, I consider myself a reasonably intelligent person that like, you know, looks at this and, you know, and, and I still, fear that and it you know and we in dreams that sometimes that comes up i mean i've i've been working with lucid dreams for some times for some time and one of my lucid dream incubations was to meet my soul i said i want to i want to meet my soul i had no idea what that was going to be like but in the dream you know the dream is very thought responsive um especially lucid dreams and so i'm there fully lucid and i say i want to meet my soul and uh and i feel this terror come over me that I'm going to find out that my soul is damned, you know, for not, you know, doing whatever I should be doing based on whichever Christian belief system. And for me, it was fundamentalist, like Christianity it was out of the Bible verbatim. Prior to that, we were Russian Orthodox, but we discovered that that was wrong. And what was right was only the Bible verbatim and people that use the Bible, Bible verbatim to tell you what the Bible meant verbatim, literally. <laughs> 
And uh, anything other than that was the devil, Bobby Boucher. Uh, that's a thing from Waterboy. <laughs> you know, everything other than that was the devil and uh, totally off limits. And anything, if anything ever bad happened to me, um, it was a clear sign that God was not in favor of me. So therefore, I should repent and, you know, seek repentance. And, and, uh, and it, man, it really jacked me up for a long time. And, uh, and it still does. It's still present. It's still in me. Um, I hope that that stops messing people up the way that it, I wouldn't wish it on anybody else. Because uh, you can't shake it. You know, it's a trauma that's like built into like that. It's like on the operating system, a virus that's on the operating system. Uh, and yeah, I asked this lucid dream to meet my soul. And uh, I feel this terror that I'm going to see something hideous. And then I worry because I know that dreams are thought responsive and I'm awake in the dream. I'm conscious in the dream. I'm worried that my expectation of the fact that I think myself to be negative is going to make it negative, and then that'll confirm it, and then I won't be able to know whether it's negative or not. And uh, thankfully, there was a grace that was far more mysterious than what's in the books uh, of what we should follow. There's a grace that that happened in the in the in the dream, and instead, I was shown this loving, cute baby puppy dog. You know, and uh, was very surprised that that's what I was shown. I would have never imagined that. But uh, it, it unfolded to a lot of other meanings. And, uh, you know, one of the dream messengers in ancient Greece is uh, Asclepius. And uh, one of his, uh, you know, uh, I guess totems, I don't know if you'd use the word totem, a spirit animal is the, is the dog. And, the, you know, so, you know, I thought I saw that. And that's, you know, there, again, I'm not saying that that's what it meant. Uh, but the fact that it could mean something. And the fact that dreams are not just dreams or that dreams are not the work of the devil and that we're not somehow separate from nature and our goal is to, you know, my family would say our goal is to conquer and dominate nature. Like that's that's their idea. And even these cows we have here are rescue dairy cows. You know, you see their ear tags and brands on them. But this new calf that's born is like, you know, not scared at all because we're nursing this calf. But the other ones are terrified because they've been prodded and poked and chained and you know, and, you know, pulled away from their young. And, you know, that's the, that's the place, the world we live in. I guess, Jorge, I wanted to maybe bring up now, because I brought up dreams and we haven't really talked much about that, is what brought me to your work was you being mentioned in so much dream work. Uh, the first time I heard you mention was you were quoted by David J. Brown in his book, uh, Dreaming Wide Awake, about uh, that, you the you had theorized, but you hadn't done a study on it, but you theorized that geologically, um, if someone were to sleep over the top of a lava tube, that that may cause sleep paralysis, which then creates a greater degree of uh, chances for someone to become lucid in their dreams. You also wrote a book called Wrestling with Ghosts, which is one of the first books, I think, that I know of, at least modernly, uh, about sleep paralysis and kind of the what sleep paralysis is. So maybe you want to touch on your relationship with eco-psychology and lucid dreaming. Slash. Yeah, um, well, the relationship, there are many points of convergence um, only because I was interested in one set of affairs. And I was also um, a person who experienced sleep paralysis in a chronic fashion from the time I was um, very, very young. So then you have this lens. And sleep paralysis means you're awake in your body, 
but you can't move your body because your body is asleep, but your consciousness is awake. Yeah, the, actually, the clinical definition would be that uh, from the data that we have looking at, at clients, patients, individuals who undergo the EEG um, sleep studies, that uh, in actuality, there, it, it includes people who, who enter REM sleep with some higher degree of awareness or self-awareness, if that makes sense. Um, so, so from a scientific perspective, for me, then when you're looking at uh, falling asleep, all the, the events, that, physiological events that take place, um, you know, going from four stages of non-REM, non-rapid eye movement um, to REM sleep, uh, rapid eye movement, that transition of consciousness, uh, how consciousness fluctuates, it's actually... Um, uh, supported by an architecture of uh, mechanisms, structures, uh, tissue that is actually turning itself down in a very sequential way. It just so happens that for a lot of folks um, who experience chronic isolated sleep paralysis, you know, the sequence is off a bit. It is not known if it is a genetic situation or it's an issue of being hyper alert before going to bed, upset, stressed, anxious. Um, and I'll, I'm going to circle back to, to your question in reference to the, the other work, geomagnetic work. So, so imagine that in some of us, that sequence is off. So we, we come to too soon. Uh, we come to awareness, I guess, um, to... Um, to the awareness that we're paralyzed too soon in that sequence of cascading down. And there's this kind of nether world uh, of awareness where we are conscious that we are in REM sleep in, in rapid eye movement, only in rapid eye movement uh, sleep or the, the REM sleep periods are, are we paralyzed so we don't, as you probably know, so we don't act out our dreams to begin with. So, so the, 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 the literature, the scientific literature is very clear Folks who are awakened from REM sleep uh, are the ones who cite um, reports of sleep paralysis, the feeling of presence, situation, uh, the sinister entity in the room, uh, any number of very strange phenomena, which, which makes sense if you're in REM sleep proper, where consciousness now is very rich and very, very much prime uh, to go to the next level. And the next level is dreaming, right? Uh, any sort of dreaming. So, so that's the way I see, I guess, sleep paralysis as this kind of uh, fault in the sequencing um, for any number of reasons. The, the literature with the geomagnetic stuff has a lot to do with stress and anxiety as well, that maybe as, as, as humans um, and, and also with other mammals maybe, we have developed uh, systems for detecting, say, seismic events for, um, you know, detecting even um, uh, infrasounds. So sounds that are so low frequency that um, maybe, maybe only a few of us can hear it, can hear it. Or maybe we can only hear those when we are sleeping and quiet and everything is absolutely, um, absolutely quiet in our sleeping surroundings. Our jaw bones are connected to our hearing, 
and they do transmit a lot of low frequency information. So this is a convoluted way of saying that um, maybe these systems and this reaction uh, have, have a lot to do with a mechanism that was super useful for us humans a long time ago to detect uh, incoming uh, geological uh, phenomena. So the geomagnetic trace changes as a function of seismic activity. So following that logic, any changes that are dramatic, um, especially when you are very absolutely quiet and there are no noises to disturb you or to compete with those processes, alert you to something else that's going on. Um, if that makes sense. So there's this. It does. I, we, had, we had talked about this a little bit um, before this podcast uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, you said that you also would want to test it just seeing if you were outside somewhere, if that would also have a similar effect. You'd have to do a control test of just, you know, camping outside or like where double blind, where even the people that are placing the tent wherever don't know where it is. Only somebody outside actually knows where the, you know, where it is and is looking at it to see if that was the case. And sadly, there's not a whole lot of interest, which is surprising to me in lucid dreaming, out-of-body experiences, and, and sleep paralysis. Somehow, uh, that's really at the, I don't know, it's at the edge of strange for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people still don't believe that lucid, someone could become consciously aware in a dream, or that there's anything valuable of being consciously aware in a dream. Uh, my most profound moments of my life have been lucid dreams. Um, and that's where I've touched the divine uh like completely, it's not a, uh, a, a a matter of faith or a matter of belief. It's a actual, real, felt experience that feels just like talking to you here today, and in some ways even more real. Uh, that carries like I still feel that you know I could talk about at some times, and my hair will stand. I physiologically respond to the experience that I had in the lucid dream, um, different lucid dreams that I've had. But I had uh, somebody come here and camp. You know, we have the 86 acres, and they went up by the waterfall, and they were camping. Uh, and there's very, it's very wild here. We don't kill any animals. We just have like a no, unless we're like, if some, we're getting attacked or something, then maybe we would. But there's really just pigs. So we don't kill any animals here, unless, of course, they're like dying. We have to put them out of their suffering or something. But, uh, but just we don't practice that. And so a lot of pigs come running through here. And, uh, and there's cows and there's donkeys and there's horses. And uh, so he was up there camping. Uh, this guy was young. He's, I think, 26. He'd never had a lucid dream, didn't even know about lucid dreams. And uh, he comes in in the morning. Uh, surprisingly, I had never even talked to him about it and or he wasn't listening. I'm not sure which. But he comes in. And he goes, I had the craziest thing happen where I like I woke up. And, and then I woke up again, but then I was like still asleep but awake. I don't know what the hell's going on. Something weird is going on up there. You know, and uh, so he had had a lucid dream and a false awakening. Uh, and I think it might have been induced by nature. And I wonder if we were all still sleeping in, in nature and living with nature, if we would be naturally leading with the right, the right hemisphere would be kind of leading as opposed to the left hemisphere. And if our dream life would be more lucid and our waking life would also be more lucid and dreamlike and feel we would feel this constant you know those synchronistic moments and that 
real, that deep connection with everyone around us and with the divine and with the stars. Uh, you know, like we don't think about, I mean, I don't think about the stars very often. You know, the sun's out and there's clouds, but they beyond this, these clouds and the, this blue, the reflection of the water are trillions of stars, each one a thousand times larger than the earth. You know, you, our galaxy came out of, uh, you know, uh, what is it called? A supernova exploding, you know, is the, is the, at least the theory, or maybe that's fact. I don't know, but you know, like we don't really consider the great mystery of all of this. You know, people kind of go through the day, myself included, like, okay, you know, I'm worried about my bill or I'm worried about this thing, you know, and there's this unimaginable mystery that's present right here, like right you know, right beyond our eyelids or right in front of us. Not even, we don't even need to be dreaming to have these experiences. They sometimes they'll penetrate our waking physical reality as well. Um, What's interesting to me about the person who actually set up camp in your property is that actually uh, in our reports, our subjects report experiences like, like this when they're camping. And I think some of that has to do with, um, maybe some anxiety related to sleeping outdoor, all the sounds that you're hearing, the surroundings are not familiar. So, so I think there's the sense that you're bringing um, hypervigilance uh, and awareness, a heightened sense of awareness in your sleep proper. Um, the, 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 anal the analogy here will be sort of a vision quest where you are exaggerating all these uh, um, conditions, right? So, so you're not drinking, you're not eating, you're in a cave someplace and you're there for three days or more. So imagine, you know, not camping for a long time and also find yourself in Hawaii. Um, you know, it's sleeping outdoors in Hawaii, um, especially in the big island. There are a lot of things that can really uh, uh, hurt you. I mean, the centipedes, they are not joke. <laughs> no joke. If you're sleeping on the ground, they are, they're also scorpions and uh, the pigs are everywhere. So if you haven't heard of a pig eating at night, it's horrendous. I mean, they're chomping and they're ferocious animal. I mean, they have a lot of uh, muscle in their body. So, so all of that, I mean, I imagine a person trying to sleep and thinking that this is paradise and you know, you're surrounded with all these things going on. I can see why a person will go into sleep proper hypervigilant. And that's the super uh, ripe condition for dream lucidity and, and sleep paralysis if you are prone to sleep paralysis. So, and vice versa, I imagine, uh, I always think of the opposite uh, example. Imagine taking a, a Janomami from Brazil or, or Venezuela and who's never slept in a city and taking them into a hotel and forcing them to sleep in a hotel room. I think that they'll have the, mo the most whopping uh, lucid dream that they have ever had uh, in their lives because the experience will be so so traumatizing, so anxiety-producing that um, you can not help it, I guess. Um, that would be my guess. <laughs> so, uh, Jorge, you, uh, you've taken a lot of people on, on vision quests and, and uh, wilderness you know, uh, psychological healing or wilderness healing in general. 
do you want to touch about what some of those experiences have been like and what is what do people find generally the most fascinating about the people that you tell about this what do they find so fascinating yeah well there's there are two stories or two sides to this one the kind of experiences that you can take students to you can invite students to, to partake of, which are limited by the kinds of insurance, uh, liability circumstances that any university will, will be imposing on, on any instructor. So when it comes to those, the only thing that um, could be done is to take students to, you know, truly wild space, uh, something that is off the beaten path, um, bushwhack your way into a pond or a lake, camp and then allow students uh, to go out uh, that camp outside that camp and spend encourage them to spend one night or two nights uh, alone um, and you know that is already uh, if you're doing that and you're fasting that in itself without doing a full-fledged vision quest is very powerful um, especially students or people in general don't have a lot of experience with nature so the very fact that they find themselves out there and they're hearing all these sounds and now they're, they're fasting. They've been fasting for 48 hours, three days. Uh, ketosis begins uh, with the possibility of actually having um, hallucinations or rich dream imagery. So anything is possible, even, even with those very modest, uh, modest um, factors or variables uh, in place. The other side of that is taking individuals uh, who were friends, um, because I had done it, to wilderness areas and actually do some more serious and more intense and, and having to deal with the, the repercussions of my leadership and my um, <laughs> bad decisions uh, in that not everyone responds uh, positively uh, during those circumstances. So. You, you are you can find yourself in situations where you have to actually babysit babysit in, in the best possible uh, term sense of that phrase individuals I mean um, individuals who, who have never encountered certain traumas also come face to face with something that is um, very disturbing and, and you have to process that with them so these are the two kind of um, Different sets of experiences. A lot of that does a lot of that come up, Jorge. Yeah. These the trauma the trauma. Little things, some big things. Uh, so small scale traumas and big scale traumas. You know, things that students were processing throughout the entire semester. Um, some animosity they had against someone, or if they felt victimized, they 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 couldn't express it until that day, that night, that moment. So so in that sense. Um, you know, you ask about wilderness therapy. So that would be kind of the, the perfect context for, for that because it was true wilderness. Um, they were asked to to exert themselves more than normally that they can, going hungry for a few days, uh, still drinking water, uh, but going hungry for a few days, that's a way of shifting your awareness um, and making you more sensitive to to your internal states and also to things that are exterior to self. Um, yeah, with good and bad uh, results, right? So we're in a we're in a time now, uh, Jorge, where um, you use the word journeying through. I think you said, or maybe I, I heard that. 
because uh, I hear the term journey quite often. Uh, and a lot of it is an uh, inner journey, you know, where people either take an inner journey through meditation or through guided meditation, or they're journeying through dreams, or they're shamanic journeying, uh, uh, or they're journeying through dance, or they're journeying through uh, plant medicines. Um, and you and I talked a lot about uh, plant medicines and psychedelics. And uh, I guess the question I would have for you is... Uh, can somebody can somebody experience what they could experience on psychedelics without psychedelics by things like fasting and vision quests and time in nature? Can they experience that same level of healing? I will say that they are very different experiences, right? And those experiences offer different things for different people at different times. So... Um, I would say that, um, you know, only speaking for myself, at some point in, in my life, in my development, I needed some sort of radical way of shaking up my psyche so I could see things clearly better. Uh, I didn't have a guide. I didn't have anyone to help me with. So I had to uh, prepare myself for a whole year and enter the psychedelic realm. And that was beneficial, but I almost died twice doing that. So. You know, I, it seemed to me back then that, yeah, it was like opening an encyclopedia and being hit with an entire set of encyclopedia textbooks. But but um, because I didn't have the cultural guidance to uh, to process that, it, it may not be the 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 best route for me. So that's when you know I moved into other practices so like. Zazen and, and just spending time in nature. Um, uh, fasts are, are very powerful. I do recommend fasts for long, long periods of time. Um, What's a long period of time? Up to 20, 28 days uh, easily. That would be a, a, good, a good amount of time. So um, for a while, for a set of what, maybe 10 years, I was doing you know, five days, 10 days, 15 days. And I think the maximum number of days was about 28 days. And Just on water? And those were uh, water, some juice. I allowed myself some coffee in the morning so I could actually do work, uh, some tea in the evenings, uh, and then nothing else. Um, so so basically, I want to stay in ketosis or people want to stay in in under ketosis as long as possible before going into starvation proper. So you don't want to be eating sweets, any carbohydrates that could cut uh, or stop ketosis. So you can eat things like protein-based uh, stuff. You can eat marrow, uh, fat, even meat. Uh, if you wanted to, maybe a soup, a little, um, little soup, marrow soup. So what about vegetarians like myself? What would, what would you eat? Yeah, you can do uh, some sort of consomme out of any number of things, right? And you can add uh, a little bit of olive oil instead of animal fat. Fat is good when you're under ketosis. Um, uh, you know, and you have to do it several times for, uh, at first with, you know, short durations of time, try three days, try four or five days. It, it's, it's hard to tell, estimate when ketosis starts for any one individual. You can sort of estimate 
guess estimate by whether or not they're males or females, they weigh so much, um, they have so much um, adipose tissue, but typically between three and five days, uh, anybody, any adult can enter into ketosis. And at that point, you know, there's this super fine tuning of cognitive processes for sure, affective processes uh, for sure, and that alone, I mean, that's the, the subtle but very deep um, processing of um, any number of things that you can call therapy. If you do that in, in, in nature, then tracking becomes even better because you can, you can actually uh, tune to the signs uh, of animals, the sounds, the smells. Within five days, you're smelling everything. Everything has a smell. Uh, within 28 days, you smell a human being coming down the trail a mile away, so it's it, it brings you, it brings you back to to these uh, I would call the original senses, this ability to to perceive with the whole body, and I think that uh, in my mind it has a, an evolutionary basis that our ancestors typically were hungry for a long time that they missed a lot of meals. Uh, on a constant basis, uh, on a consistent basis, so they find themselves in these ketotic states uh, more often than not. I find and myself often correcting people here. when they say they're like, you know, it's like 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. They're like, I'm starving. And I'm like, no, I promise you, you're not, <laughs> I promise you, you're not starving. <laughs> starving comes 28. If you if you're, you know, if you have enough body, enough tissue around you, even if you're thin, as a railroad nail, you you have enough fat uh, somewhere in the body, enough tumors, enough something uh, to be given up through that process. I you think. said you have enough tumors and, to be not, given up through that starting. process. You mean that you're saying that through fasting, a lot of this stuff could heal too? Sure. The, 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 the body has to eat something in ketosis, right? So uh, when you get to starving, then you're, you're using you're consuming muscle mass. But before then, anything the body can grab at, uh, first your fat, your fat turns into energy, uh, and then any other, any, any other tissue that is kind of iffy, that shouldn't be there, that is uh, superfluous. Um, and, and there's good evidence that this tissue tends to be cancerous or overdeveloped in the body. Um, cysts, especially uh, even in your lungs. Uh, uh, but, you know, ideally at, at the end of 10 days, 15 days, the body has gone through through itself, looking through every little drawer, looking for <laughs> every bit of tissue and food before you enter a starvation. And at, at that point, point, you have to stop. Obviously, you, you know that the body is now doing something very, very different than it was. I mean, it's such a beautiful thing that uh, as as human beings, it's it's kind of, you know, paradoxical. But something that I heard you say earlier reminded me of uh, David Abrams' work, uh, Becoming Animal. I don't know if you've uh, read that. He actually narrates it. It's He narrates, if you listen to the audiobooks, it's so great because he narrates it. I actually should have him on the show. I meant to reach out. Uh, but uh, it it reminds us that we have an animal body when we go outside and smell all of these things. It's like, Oh wait, like I am this body also. But then this idea of fasting 
is uh, like, I guess you would call it contra natori, right? Like, like opposite of nature where I can be hungry yet as a human being choose to not eat, to experience some type of shift of consciousness, which is like one of the biggest joys of, of, of being a human being. I know you were, I think you were uh, interviewed, the interview I listened to, one of the only few interviews you have anywhere uh, online was from, uh, was it Timothy Leary's ex-wife? Was that who it was? Yeah, Joanna. And I think that Timothy Leary said, if you don't have control over your own consciousness, then you're definitely not free. I'm again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing that, but if as a human being, if we don't have control over our own consciousness, then how can we say that we live in a, in a free society or in a free world? And, you know, I, I agree with that in the, in, in the sense of agency, having greater agency, the more you know about yourself, your body, the, the greater agency you have, period. The more you know, the more you know about yourself as, a, as an organism. But I think but it has to do maybe more with um, evolutionary processes. We, we are uh, beings uh, who have been here for a long, long time. And if you include Neanderthal genes and everything else that came before us, uh, you know, surviving was, was hard. And uh, things were not available to eat all the time. So people had to go hungry for uh, m- more often than we think. Um, and that was not a bad thing. That's not, no one got panicky or missing breakfast or lunch or dinner five, six days. So they didn't, they didn't, they didn't get hangry. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, no. I think it's an excuse to treat people however you want. You know, you're, I hear that so often, someone's snapping on me and I'm like, and they're like, well, I'm hangry. You know, I'm like, well, please treat me with some respect, you know, do well, some inner work on yourself. Don't just be angry because well, you the beautiful eat thing, some food, prepare if that's your I'm case. sorry, um, Zach, I interrupted you twice. Um, <laughs> no, 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 it's good, it was a joke. Is, uh, you know, if people were able to do that and try it uh, within three, five days, they'll find the very opposite that uh, ketosis brings them down. Um, it tones them down considerably um, in terms of the strong, exaggerated emotions. So in terms of being too loquacious, too extroverted, you know, people come back to the, to the middle in a very beautiful way. I, you know, I would like to circle back to something you mentioned. Actually, you, you touched on it directly twice. But every conversation we had, and we've had several conversations within one, one long text, uh, can be circled back to this idea of, and it's a question that is critical in, in eco-psychology, is how, how do you go back? Uh, this notion of um, leaving this urban mind um, and, and becoming this kind of animal mind, again, and whether or not the questions are multiple, whether or not everyone can do that, whether or not you will get benefits from doing that. Uh, so there, there are multiple questions that are associated with that. Why would anybody do that? Can you do it halfway? And um, one of the last talks that I, that I um, gave was in Spain and it had to do with this uh, movement. I just classify our attunement to nature into a series of stages that, that started with the hyper 
urbanized person ending in the truly wild person. I'm trying to guess uh, with the best of psychology, what sort of uh, psychologists and sense of consciousness we were seeing at every step of that regression, if we're gonna call it that, regression in a good sense, right? You, Zach, today, we choose to, we decide that even Hawaii, uh, even where you are is too, too, too complex, <laughs> too cozy, and uh, you decide to you know, become a hermit someplace else, or I decide to leave this uh, tiny city and move into the, the wilderness. You know, there, there are stages of dissociation. Um, and, and the question is whether or not everyone can do it. And I, I go back to that because um, people seem to believe that um, that we're all talking, when we talk about eco-psychology, we're talking about uh, having a person who is an urbanite and moving them into a situation of wildness, complete wildness, where they will never be the person who they were. In a sense, that's true. In another sense, it's impossible to do, uh, basically, because we, we are super comfortable with uh, urban sites uh, we like to go shopping, we like to drive cars, and there are some things that will never give up. And those things may or may not be true obstacles to actually changing our consciousness in a very dramatic way. But what I always argue is that you can get very close uh, to that ancestral mind. Uh, yeah, they may not be true shamans today, but um, you can get very close to that um, degree of connectivity. If you were to do the things that they, they do, they go hungry and they eat certain foods and they don't eat other foods and uh, they don't have society barking at them 24 seven. And any one of them can actually take one of the paths into the jungle and be gone for five, six days without uh, giving any accounts to anybody. So there, there are some freedoms, uh, the sense of full agency that come with being a, a natural person that we do not have. As close the, the, the closer that we can get to that, I think the better we are psychologically, even though we can never be that kind of wild, wild person. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it makes beautiful sense. I've never heard it quite put that way. And I think I've I've craved I, I think a lot of people crave this and I think that's why they travel all over the place. But when they travel, you know, maybe they stay in hostels, they don't quite accomplish I think that the craving is there and they don't know what it is, but they, they want that ability to, you know, be free, but it's, it's difficult to even find, to know how to go about being free. You know, you, you go travel. I mean, I did. And I go, well, is that it? I lived in a tent for three months in Shasta after running a big company that I owned with, you know, hundreds of employees. Uh, I went from that living in a tent. I said, well, I haven't tried this. I got to the point where I was so miserable that I would have tried just about anything. Someone invited me to this hippie dance thing called ecstatic dance. And I said, well, that sounds like something I would never do. You know, it was like Jim Carrey and Yes Man. I was like, I would never do that. That sounds horrible. Of course I'll be there. You know, like <laughs> that's kind of where I, where I got with things. And uh, somehow I find myself here, here in Hawaii. And something that you've inspired in me is uh, to explore... Uh, more fasting. Um, I, I had become paralyzed, unable to walk for almost a month where I had to have a walker and everything. I have no idea what happened exactly. 
uh, but about a little over four years ago. And that began another awakening, like a deeper awakening, I guess you could call it, where a lot of things fell away through this. Um, but instinct, but it, it, I would eat like, I, you know, I couldn't move and my muscles were spasming and I would eat food. And the minute I would eat, my stomach would even like, like spasm more. And I had this like instinct for some reason to just stop eating and people, I mean, not many people were around me at the time. So I, I don't know, but the couple that were, were a little concerned because not only was I then paralyzed on my back, I was then paralyzed on my back withering away from drinking nothing but water, you know, but I, I do contribute my healing partial, you know, partially due to that because it was by day nine, I was able to, you know, actually, you know, get up and kind of move around. I mean, I was still in excruciating pain, uh, but I don't know if I would have gotten out of it. I don't know if I would have like went to, a, you know, even more doctors and gotten back surgery or painkillers or whatever. And it was my opiate addiction previously that kept me from taking painkillers. People were like, hey, you want a painkiller? I'm like, no, I know that road. I've already been down that road. I don't want to go down that road again. I'm going to just not eat until I could walk, kind of what, I, what I'd come up with. And, uh, you know, I, I think tapping more into fasting and maybe even for short periods of time, like two or three days, and maybe some of the listeners of my, my podcast could you know, if, if COVID still has their work or business shut down, could use this as a time to, to plan something. You know, when you schedule it, uh, it becomes real. You know, I'm going to schedule fasting from this day to this day. I'm going to go out in nature somewhere and camp. Uh, and when you say go out in nature, you, you picture people taking, you know, camping gear with them and fasting. That's probably maybe, do you think that that's wise with people that don't have a lot of experience being out in the elements? Yeah, I mean, so um, the, the possibility of making a shelter, I mean, you don't want to get too cold or too hot. So having some sort of shelter is super important. Having water is also important. And choosing a place that's um, conducive to the whole experience is also very important. So those, those three things have to be really uh, thought about um, rather than just packing 40, 20 kilos in your backpack and taking off, um, bringing every gadget that you can possibly think of to feel distracted. The idea is to leave most of that stuff behind. Um, today, you know, with students who are very experienced and who have done this with me several times, we just bring a bag and a knife, a mora, a mora uh, knife. Um, sometimes they bring tinder, something to make a little fire with. Um, and the rest is the stuff that we get outside, just a knife, a bag. Um, and then the rest we know how to do. We know how to build a shelter within a few hours. Um, we know where to get water or we find, we go to places where there will be uh, abundant sources of water. And the rest, you know, is that situation of uh, frugality forces you to pay attention to nature because everything else that you're going to get now it's going to be a gift of nature or uh, by means of your own intellect and device and attention. So that, that forces you to be super attentive to the environment. I once heard somebody say that art is about like art is about eliminating things. And I, and I picture as you're saying this using nature to live on. And not only do you do using nature to live on when you go out to these vision quests, you also uh, use nature to make art with your hands, basically only using your hands and things in nature to make art. 
uh, which I saw some of it, this like shamanic type of art is very beautiful. Uh, I think, you know, what's coming up for me, Jorge, is I would love to at some point, I imagine, like I keep seeing the image of uh, I'm here on the Mauna Loa stream on the big island in Nanole, and we have the 86 acres here. It's a private road, so there's nobody ever driving by here. So really, you know, pretty much you could do, you know, all sorts of kind of back to nature type things on this 86 acres. We also have a fresh water source. Uh, that we actually drink the water from the stream. We filter it, but we drink the water from the stream. Uh, it is more hydrating than even the rain catchment water that we also have or water that I drink elsewhere. It's like super hydrating. And it comes off of Mauna Kea, the tallest mountain on earth, if you go from the base. And what I could imagine is uh, doing some type of like uh, these spiritual fasts or vision quests and going up because uh, the way that Hawaii works is that the river is actually you could go up the rivers, I believe. So we could just go up, we could go up this river right by my house and, uh, and right by the sanctuary here and go to the, I don't know how high you could get. I've actually, as sad as it is, I've never gone past the property line. I never even gone up to the property line until a couple weeks ago. So I, I imagine it goes probably all the way up to the top of Mauna Kea. So it's uh, could be a really magical experience for a group of people to go fasting through nature in Hawaii. And the climate is very friendly, aside from rain. Yes. It's very friendly to yes. that. And especially if you go up, with rain. the mosquitoes go away also, which is great. That's right. Yeah, what's the, what's the, the cotton meal? The, it's a, a, a thousand liters. Um, what's the, the sweet spot? I forget for the mosquitoes to be completely gone. Um, Gosh, I don't know. I know that at the top of the land, we our land goes from 200, 200 feet to 1,100 feet. And up towards the top, there's no mosquitoes. Uh, there's not much mosquitoes here, period, because we have a lot of winds and stuff, which, you know, deters them. But yeah, mosquitoes don't sound that threatening until, until you're out among the mosquitoes. I'm sure you have many more stories to tell about that than I do. But... <laughs> Mosquitoes in Hawaii to me were, were not that um, objectionable. I don't know why. You know, I could always find a way of protecting myself. Um, now, the scorpions. We have to be. <laughs> we have to tell people about these things. Uh, you know, I've the, never seen a scorpion here, Jorge. There's scorpions on the. Oh, no, you have Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yes, they are. Um, um, <laughs> I've seen centipedes. Uh, but of I course, the centipedes, uh, you know, a bite from one of those guys um, could be very, very painful. Yeah, I got bit by one in Kauai. You, you did? Yeah, on my birthday. Okay. I got bit by one on my birthday in bed. Hey, that, the, the wild came into my, into my domesticated uh, house that I was staying in out there. It happens more frequently like that. Um, in bed, people are sleeping and they crawl. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Heebie Part of the experience. Yes. Yeah. The initiation of Hawaii. No. So anytime, you know, going on ideas, anytime will be uh, a wonderful thing to do. Get some people together and uh, plan something um, very meaningful or what we think will be meaningful and then just enact it. That sounds beautiful. Any final thoughts, uh, Jorge, for the, for the never, show? There's no such thing as a final thought. Everything's a process and things never end. Um, 
you know, I'm super lucky of being here on uh, now in Oregon. Um, I just went to Hasida Beach, Hasida Beach this morning. Um, nobody there for miles and miles and miles of beaches. Um, nobody there. Uh, I was looking for agates. I was looking for something to do. Um, the encouragement, I guess, from that experience this morning is, you know, get do something that um, that you think is fun, interesting, that captures your attention. Um, trying to connect here eco-psychology with uh, lucid dreaming. As you probably know, there are any number of ex exercises that foster lucid dreaming or dream lucidity. And all of them have to do with capturing attention in a very intense way. Uh, looking at your hands, breathing, any number of things. But uh, if you consider something like um, agate hunting or tracking, something that brings your mind to uh, dead focus and, and having that experience for a good two hours, I would say, um, that done twice, three times a week, it, it's a beginning to a good practice that actually feeds uh, both ways, feeds your feral, uh, possibly wild uh, self, and also probably increases the probability um, of having more vivid dreams and lucid dreams. Um, those two things are simple things to do. People can do bird watching, um, I don't know, tree identification, plant identification. If they are into geology, just look for rocks, any other rocks. Uh, but, you know, having a quest. It's, it's kind of a, a good trick uh, to keep you interested and to keep you going back to um, to wilderness. Um, I think that's a wonderful idea. I actually wrote down that to myself. Um, I, I, I want to talk with you after the recording if you have a couple minutes. Uh, and uh, thank you very much. I guess we'll end the recording here. But uh, I feel what, what I'm going to talk to Jorge about is about how do I incorporate more of what he does uh, in my everyday life. So uh, thank you for listening to the show. Thank you to everyone. Thank you, Zach. Thank you so much for listening. And please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m., and we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.